Could there be a new conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan? There's been renewed fighting in the disputed Nagorno-Karabakh region. That's despite a ceasefire signed two years ago. But will the truce hold? I'm Mohammed Jamjoum, and you're listening to the Inside Story podcast, where we dissect, analyze, and help define major global stories. All right, let's go ahead and bring in our guests in Yerevan, Richard Giragosian, director of the Regional Study Center. In Istanbul, Matthew Breiza, a former U.S. ambassador and mediator on the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict. He's also a board member at the Jamestown Foundation. And in Baku, Fariz Ismailzadeh, vice rector at the Azerbaijan Diplomatic Academy. A warm welcome to you all, and thanks so much for joining us on Inside Story today. Fariz, let me start with you today. From your vantage point, um, has the peace process totally broken down at this point? Not totally, but there's a big disappointment because almost two years have passed since the end of the war. And uh, the peace plan which Azerbaijan offered Armenia, consisting of mutual recognition of territorial integrity, opening of the borders, the limitation of the borders, has not been accepted by Armenia. Armenia keeps delaying the peace process, and no substantial progress has been made on uh, opening of communication and transport lines, as well as recognition of territorial integrity of both countries. So there's a big disappointment in uh, Baku, and uh, frequent violations of ceasefire by illegal Armenian troops. Uh, Most recently, four days ago, Azerbaijani soldier has been killed. Uh, They show that these illegal uh, criminal groups, illegal gangs, still pose a big threat to their regional security. So that is the main reason for pessimism and for frustration in Baku, as well as in many uh, European capitals. And Richard, from your perspective, uh, do you think that there could be a whole new conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan? And, And did this latest escalation come as a surprise? Well, in many ways, I'm concerned. I'm concerned largely because this represents the most serious escalation of hostilities since the fragile ceasefire of 2020. What worries me as well is the broader context. Azerbaijan's attacks are not limited to targeting Armenian forces in Nagorno-Karabakh. This is an Azerbaijani challenge to Russia and the presence of the Russian peacekeepers, meaning that the implications of a widening of this conflict are significant. Nevertheless, Armenia, I think, needs to recommit to diplomacy. Armenia and Azerbaijan need to reassert that there is no resolution by military force. Diplomatic negotiations are the only way forward. Uh, Matthew, this latest violence has triggered calls for calm from Russia, from NATO, from the European Union. What steps can be taken now to de-escalate the situation? Yeah, I mean, those parties are almost always calling for de-escalation and uh, uh, getting back to negotiations. So specifically, what can happen? Uh, Well, A, I I hope there's a recognition uh, by both sides, as you could hear from both Fariz and Richard, that, you know, we don't want, nobody wants further conflict. B, Azerbaijan's response, or from Richard's, maybe his perspective, if they think Azerbaijan maybe initiated this round of fighting, but it ended. And it was limited. And, you know, <laughs> condolences to the three troops that were killed, but it was it was limited and, and uh, quite emphatic. So hopefully this round is finished. So what needs to happen, I think, is that um, Prime Minister Pashinyan needs to feel the political strength to go forward 
and not only finish implementation of the November 10th ceasefire statement, uh, which calls for all the Armenian troops to depart, calls for many other things too, uh, but also to move toward a negotiation on a border delimitation between Azerbaijan and Armenia, their international border, I mean, and a final peace treaty for Karabakh to settle the conflict once and for all. I believe that Prime Minister Pashinyan really wants to do that, as, as do I believe a, a President uh, Aliyev wants to. But as you showed in your, in your opening package, um, as soon as Pashinyan said he'd sit down, or his foreign minister would sit down with his counterpart, there were street protests uh, in Armenia. So Pashinyan has been, um, he's been painted by his political opposition as, um, well, as committing treason by agreeing to the ceasefire and then wanting to move ahead in normalizing relations with Azerbaijan and restoring Armenia's transportation contacts with Azerbaijan to lead to a state of economic normalcy. So what really needs to happen is that that political standoff in Armenia needs somehow to get worked through. Uh, Richard, let me ask you about something that Matthew was just bringing up. Uh, there is a lot of anger in Armenia being directed toward Prime Minister Pashinyan. Uh, there was anger that was being directed toward him even after the ceasefire agreement was finalized because as part of that agreement, Armenia had to give up swaths of territory that it had controlled for decades. Um, how much anger is still being directed toward uh, the prime minister now? And, and how much is that impacting his ability to actually finalize a, a, a peace agreement? Well, in many ways, what we see is lingering opposition, yes, but ineffective opposition, definitely. Much of the street demonstrations have failed to attract significant numbers. Moreover, unlike Azerbaijan, Armenia is a much more vibrant democracy. Armenian government under Prime Minister Pashinyan has won re-election in a second free and fair election last summer. There is a rare degree of legitimacy in Armenia which does reassure and also gives us hope to find a negotiated way out of this crisis. Fariz, where do things stand right now um, when it comes to the government of Azerbaijan, when it comes to signing a, a final peace agreement? What is the stance uh, of the government? I think the vision that Azerbaijani government has and has declared since 2020 is that the region should be a region of peace, security, cooperation, mutual uh, integration of economies. That's why Azerbaijan offered Armenia to open the uh, communication lines, transport lines. Azerbaijan is investing a lot into the construction of the Karabakh liberated areas. Many railways, airports are being built. So the vision is that we should achieve long-lasting and durable peace. But unfortunately, there are obstacles uh, still ahead of us. One of them is that still illegal Armenian troops are located in uh, areas which are controlled by Russian peacekeepers. And the second problem is that Armenia refuses the peace treaty. So these are the problems that are still ahead of us. And Azerbaijan is insisting that peace treaty should be signed and that borders should be opened and trade and communication lines should be restored. In fact, if you look at the infrastructure, Azerbaijan already finished many highways and railways, but Armenia still keeps delaying the construction on their own part. Richard, I saw you reacting to some of what uh, Fariz uh, was saying there. Did you want to jump in? Well, yes, I do want to offer one clarification. The armed forces, the military units present in Nagorno-Karabakh, are not under the control or command of Armenia proper. These are local units of the democratically elected Nagorno-Karabakh leadership. So there is an important distinction it's also a recognition of the limits of Armenian influence and control. 
What we're focused on in Armenia is much more the implementation of the terms of the ceasefire agreement as a foundation toward an eventual peace treaty or agreement. But it's difficult to disagree with Fariz because we share the same goals and objectives of regional peace and stability. Nevertheless, I do think the recent uh, attacks, the recent fighting in the, in the past days have only demonstrated the imperative for greater engagement by the West, by the European Union, to facilitate diplomatic engagement between Armenia and Azerbaijan. And I do think the blaming the victim approach will not work. As far as I saw you just now reacting to what Richard was saying, so I'm going to give you a chance now to go ahead and jump in. Yes, I just wanted to say that it's not exactly true that the forces in Karabakh are only belonging to local population. There's many evidences that uh, buses and other trucks are transporting Armenian soldiers from Republic of Armenia to Karabakh, and even some of those videos showed that our soldiers themselves acknowledging that. So. This is not exactly true that Karabakh is fighting for, for its own. And then also this soldier, that Azerbaijani soldier that was killed four days ago, this is, the, this is what triggered the response from Azerbaijani side. So these shootings and violations are constantly happening towards Azerbaijani servicemen as well as Azerbaijani civilians doing reconstruction work in Karabakh. Matthew, there are analysts who have said that while Russia has the most influence in attempting to keep the peace in the region, its resources are being stretched because of the war in Ukraine. Has the Russian peacekeeping effort in Nagorno-Karabakh been impacted by the war in Ukraine? And if so, how much? Yeah, I, I think it, it has to have been. I mean, it's difficult to, you know, measure something that's, uh, you know, a, a lack of, 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 of activity or a lack of uh, further conflict, right? I mean, to quantify that, but, um, you know, Russia's reputation has been devastated as uh, a mediator, right? I mean, if it has invaded not only uh, Ukraine twice recently, but also neighboring Georgia, uh, its prestige as a, as a peacemaker or peacekeeper is, is quite diminished. Already Russian peacekeepers have a terrible reputation from the way they've behaved in Georgia and in Moldova, where they've, they've stirred rather than kept the peace, and they've been creating pieces of countries rather than peace. Having said that, I think the Russian peacekeepers have performed pretty well uh, so far. There was an instance shortly after the, uh, right after the November uh, 2020 ceasefire statement uh, that could have spun out of control and Russian forces redeployed and were able to defuse the situation. But yeah, the Russian military is terribly stretched. And as we know, you know, estimates are that of the 150,000 troops that uh, were uh, arrayed against Ukraine as of February 24th, 75,000 have suffered casualties, according to the British Ministry of Defense, either deaths or injuries. And Russia has been moving troops from, from the Far East into Ukraine. So of course, uh, that, that has an impact on how robust the Russian peacekeeping operation could be. Um, but again, it's, it's done a pretty good job. Um, I think it would be great, though, if maybe the Turkish presence uh, was uh, augmented in terms of keeping eyes and ears on the Russian forces. You know, there's a very small Russian or uh, Turkish peacekeeping contingent in Agdam uh, at a joint peacekeeping uh, observation center. Uh, and I think also it's really important that the European Union plays an increasingly significant role in, in the negotiations 
between the leadership, even if not in peacekeeping. Well, Matthew, you know, you bring up the EU there. And of course, the EU is presenting itself as a potential mediator. In fact, in May, the EU hosted Armenian Prime Minister Nikol Pashinyan and Azerbaijani President Ilham Aliyev in Brussels. That was the second time uh, that they've been hosted there uh, for talks on how to avert future clashes. Um, do you believe that there were encouraging signs that came out of those talks? Yeah, there definitely was. And it was, you know, it looked like the two leaders of uh, Armenia and Azerbaijan, you know, found a certain degree of chemistry and uh, wanted to move ahead with the, the various uh, agreements uh, after November 2020, in particular, an agreement from January 11th, 2021, um, that called for joint projects, infrastructure projects to be developed jointly among uh, Azerbaijan, Armenia and Russia. Uh, but then there was the backlash uh, in Armenia. Richard is right that, that Armenia is a, a vibrant democracy, that Nikol Pashinyan was, or his political movement, won a resounding victory a year ago in June, which helped him consolidate his strength against his opponents. But nonetheless, precisely because Armenia is a vibrant democracy, um, there are these forces in Armenia that still they haven't quite, some haven't quite come to grips with the fact that this, this military conflict is over and it's time to move forward as all wars end with a diplomatic negotiation and a lasting, hopefully a lasting peace. Uh, Richard, what do you think about um, uh, how effective the EU can be in all this? I, I mean, can they be particularly effective if they don't have any presence on the ground? Well, to be honest, they already have been effective. The EU has been able to not mediate, but facilitate, providing a platform for Armenia and Azerbaijan to engage. And fortunately, EU engagement is much less provocative than, say, U.S. engagement or NATO expansion in terms of the Russian reaction. And in this context, where we're going in terms of post-war stability is an endorsement of EU principles of engagement, connectivity, a peaceful resolution to inherently political conflicts. So I think the EU and only the EU is best positioned to leverage the synergy of political will going forward. What's most important, though, I do think, is the need to engage diplomatically with the Armenians in Nagorno-Karabakh. For example, Armenia-Azerbaijan's bilateral issues are important, but quite separate from the security and safety of the Armenians in Nagorno-Karabakh. So I do think we need to broaden and deepen the peace process. Uh, Fariz, I, I want to take a step back and look for a moment with you at the um, Russian peacekeeping efforts. Um, how effective do you, do you think that they have been? Generally, they have been quite effective, I would say, because they are helping to preserve stability and security and not a huge, uh, you know, not many huge cases of violations of ceasefire have taken place. But of course, there were some questions to them as well from Azerbaijani side. For example, when uh, some illegal Armenian uh, soldiers were transported from uh, Armenia, Republic of Armenia, it has been disappointing to see that Russian peacekeepers allow that. Um, there has also been some high-level politicians, including even French presidential candidates, who have managed illegally to visit uh, Karabakh. This is not very welcomed by Azerbaijan. Azerbaijan uh, considers this as part of its territorial integrity, and therefore Russian peacekeepers should abide by international law. Well, I believe that in the future uh, there will be opportunities to improve the work of Russian peacekeepers. 
most importantly, in terms of making sure that illegal Armenian groups and uh, let's say military groups will be finally withdrawn from the Karabakh as it is stipulated by November ceasefire agreement or trilateral statement of the leaders. And Fariz, if I could just follow up with you, uh, you know, you have on the one hand uh, what the Russians are doing, and then you have these mediation attempts by the EU. The fact that there seem to be dual tracks right now, uh, does that complicate the situation more? Not so much. I would say they complement each other because EU mostly offers financial and economic incentives. Uh, they're offering a package for reconstruction of the area, humanitarian assistance, demining activities, uh, trust building activities. Uh, issues related to infrastructure, developing border uh, delimitation. Russians are more focusing on hard security and, and making sure that violations of ceasefire don't take place. So I think they are mutually complementary. Um, even Russian Minister of Foreign Affairs has said that they don't feel any, let's say, danger or, or hesitation by EU involvement. So I, I, I think that they are both positive tracks at the same time. Uh, Richard, it looked to me like you were nodding along a, a moment ago. Did you want to jump in? Yes, I agree with Faris very much, because what we see is a unique paradox, where despite Russian aggression, despite Russia's unjustified invasion of Ukraine, its previous invasion of Georgia, what the Russian peacekeepers represent is a rare guarantee of security and safety on the ground. With EU engagement, what we also see, to use Fariz's words, a complementary, not a contradictory approach. Because EU engagement will only tend to legitimize what was a unilateral Russian peacekeeping deployment. Because after all, even the ceasefire agreement was crafted by Russia and imposed by Russia. Nevertheless, it's the best we have on the ground. Matthew, how much concern is there right now that the fighting could get worse? And, and how unstable might things get in, in the region if, if that uh, plays out that way? Personally, I'm, I'm not so concerned that it's going to, this fighting is going to spin out of control. Um, I think that neither President Aliyev nor Prime Minister Pashinyan want that to happen. Uh, I think Pashinyan wants to desperately to do, well, what, what Richard has been kind of suggesting, uh, which is have... Karabakh be gaining some sort of a legal status at the negotiating table that is other than unequivocally part of Azerbaijan. This, this is the core of what remains to be negotiated. From Azerbaijan's perspective, that's impossible. You know, the, the military phase of the war ended, and there was a possibility for the status of Nagorno-Karabakh to be on the table, and Prime Minister Pashinyan didn't agree to that. But now Pashinyan, I think, is saying, well, we do want to negotiate that point. And uh, as well as, by the way, the French foreign minister on the day that Azerbaijan signed the ceasefire statement said the same thing, that status ought to be back on the table. So this is the big issue, I think. It's a political legal issue. I don't think either side wants to resume large-scale military operations, but there are those who wish to stir the pot. Russia is not among those, and the national leaders, I think, of Armenia and Azerbaijan are not among those people. Uh, so, Matthew, if, if both sides, as you said, you know, really are eager to eventually sign some kind of treaty, a formal peace agreement, why has it been so difficult to try to, you know, broker this? I think it's simply the case that the, there is fear uh, on, on, on the Armenian leadership side uh, that um, there's such a, maybe not huge, as Richard was saying, but vocal 
uh, opposition that even has included physical threats to Pashinyan's uh, survival, <laughs> where he is deemed, again, to be a, a, a traitor to Armenia for having signed the agreement. So you remember back in the late 90s, there was a horrible incident when there were also, there was some movement toward a Karabakh settlement where there was uh, an assassination on the floor of the parliament of Armenia that led to the deaths of the, the then prime minister and speaker of parliament. So you know, Armenian politics can get quite dicey. Uh, and I think even though the national leader might want to move ahead, uh, he knows his history. <laughs> He's being careful. Uh, but Matthew, just also very quickly, I mean, you ultimately think that this will be finalized and that this, uh, you know, a treaty will actually be signed? I do think so. I don't know when, though. The, the, the timing depends entirely on how quickly the national debate in Armenia moves ahead to one of saying, OK, the war is over. We need to settle once and for all and, and, and integrate our economy back into the region uh, versus those who say we will never give up. It's humiliation to even believe that we would trade the blood of our fallen compatriots uh, and, the, and the, 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 the independence or the sovereignty of Karabakh uh, for some economic benefits. Th that debate still has to play out in Armenia. But I think the momentum is moving in favor of a peace treaty, as evidenced by Pashinyan's uh, political victory in last June's, a year ago June's parliamentary elections. All right. Well, we have run out of time, so we're going to have to leave our conversation there today. Thanks so much to all of our guests, Richard Giragosian, Matthew Bryza, and Fariz Ismailzadeh. That's it for the Inside Story podcast. This episode was produced by Calvin Ung, Sarah Muhtad, Haiseba Umutlu, and Jimmy Gerahun. Studio sound was by Phil Morrison. The program was edited by Anil Anandan, Linda Nguyen, and Joe DeFrias. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. Thank you for listening. We'll be back again on Monday.